Hi, I'm Alice. And I'm Julia. And this is Poddemic, a St. James's series where we are trying to build community during a global pandemic. Hi, friends. We are glad you're here today. We did not get a chance to bring you an episode of Poddemic last week. So I'm not going to speak for Alice, but I know that I'm very excited to be chatting with her and bringing what I think is an important topic and discussion to all of you out there listening. So welcome. Hi, Alice. Hi, Julia. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you, too. I have some good news. We can do some uh, around here. <laughs> what's that? Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, we all do. Um, we have to re-record our outro because St. James's is getting rid of the dash or the hyphen and all of the things. No, our website address is not going to have a hyphen? I know. A dash. a dash, a hyphen. So now you don't have to say it, which is kind of um, exciting. <laughs> But, but, but now my world is rocked by this development. Oh my goodness. So we know that the world is a bit chaotic right now. And a lot of folks have started school in some way. I have spoken with people who fall all over the spectrum on going back to school paradigms. I mean, everything from like 100% online to cohort models to hybrid, which, you know, some consists of some in-person classes and some online to even a hundred percent, you know, at home school. What about you, Alice? Um, what are the kids and families kind of that you connect with? I see the same pattern of every kind of pattern. Um, and I think it is interesting, uh, that's a weak word, but it's really an interesting time as I also speak to teachers and educators who are only a few steps ahead of their classes in trying to get their material online in some fashion and cope with this new landscape, this new educational landscape we're living in, um, it feels like this burst of creativity and hard work and uh, also a finding, a discovery of a lot of sort of dead ends and blind alleys, things that don't work, things that are just too taxing or that um, don't bring life into learning. Right, right. And I can imagine that maybe these educators that you, you know, are friends with or, or have in your circle, they're planning lessons around that. And who knows, on a flip of a switch, it could, could change and they have to adapt it to a different model. Yes. Uh, and sometimes, in some cases, even since the start of the school year, two weeks, they've already had to flip switches just to readjust. School administrators have had to, you know, adjust the positions teachers hold. Uh, parents are still figuring out, you know, how to create a good learning environment at home, use of best practices with their kids. It's a whole new educational world for everybody. 
Absolutely. And of course, as you know, we, we both know uh, pretty well, the back to school isn't really the only thing that's, that everybody's facing. We also have an election season under our feet. Uh, the presidential debates were this week. We've been seeing racial violence uh, in many areas of the country. There's, you know, some big stuff going on. So we want to name that. Um, but Alice, one of the things that I find myself thinking about in this season is about how to pastor well during an election season. I, I love this uh, concern of yours because um, it is so of the moment. It's really, really relevant. It's also not that many election seasons would have pastors sort of tearing their hair, looking at, you know, how. <laughs> how right. No, this is true. Yeah. So I, um, I, I always say that attending divinity school in the South during the age of Trumpism really shapes my call right? Like it's a very particular kind of experience doing that sort of work in 2000, you know, right around 2016. So, but that's fascinating. I never looked at it that way because my housemate uh, and friend also attended divinity school during those years. And I am now realizing how such things shape mm -hmm. a, uh, you know, a population. Right. Um, and when somewhat, you have to do like yeah. a Christian ethics paper where you're researching for the entire semester, like what kinds of things come up and what you kind of the different rabbit holes you want to go down when you're preparing something like that right around 2016, I think the age of Trumpism is particular. Yeah. It, yes, it certainly is. <laughs> yes, it's certain. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Alice, I, I went through this. Our our own church community, you know, we seek to be welcoming to everybody, all walks of life in all different places and on, you know, different places, even in their own personal and spiritual journeys. But I would tend to say that it fosters the place of, you know, lots of activists, of people who consider themselves lifelong learners, of folks who are even doing advocacy work in their professional lives. And I wondered, Alice, based on your um, experience, if that seemed like a fair assessment in your view. Yes, um, I'd say that people in our church are very mission-driven and that it's reflected in the life choices they make. Our instinct is to mount the barricades rather than take shelter, and I'm just thankful that we're people of prayer so that we, you know, take counsel with God before we rush out to mend things. I loved how in your latest blog post on our church uh, website blog, referred to our presiding bishop's Michael Curry's statement in response to the Breonna Taylor case. And I'd like to quote one sentence from his statement, although there's other things I'd like to say about it. But this quote is, um, he said, Sacred spaces are safe places where the way of love and nonviolence, the way of peace, the way of justice, and the way of reconciliation can be affirmed and practiced. Hmm. I was interested in his use of the word safe together with uh, sacred hmm. because I think that people can often be confused 
about where their safety lies. I mean, we see this in children all the time who often run into danger because they see uh, something else that scares them. And I think we adult human beings are often act the same way. We, what we deem to be safe is, can sometimes be things we learn from our tribe, our families growing up. It can be unconscious. It can be uh, part of the media that we intake on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. um, also, people often misunderstand the word love or they don't, certainly it's understood that God's idea of love is different from humans' idea of love and um, completely transcends it. And so I think that what is safe in a sacred sense, what is safe to God, is different from what we human beings might think of as safe or where we might find safety. So uh, we often find safety in things that are familiar. And if what is familiar is dysfunctional, we can still find safety or think that that's where safety lies. Yes. Wow. Wait, say that again. Often uh, we find, we think that safety lies in what is familiar. But if what is familiar to us is something dysfunctional, we can just keep repeating dysfunctional patterns, thinking that that will bring us safety or comfort. Absolutely, Alice. That's, yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Given some of these, you know, dysfunctional ways that we get to God and interact, I'm wondering, I, I thought it would be worthwhile for us to talk a bit about self-care and soul care. And maybe they're the same. I was unsure, but... I loved that. I loved that you thought of that. I think it's brilliant because sometimes when we talk about self-care, again, we think of downtime. We think of... Um, like taking a bubble bath or... Um, yes, a spa actually day. Could be soul care, but yeah, but maybe more like indulgent. We Self-care sort yes. of is associated with like maybe something indulgent. Yes, um, and there is, I think there, self-care does include taking a break from what one spends, you know, eight hours a day doing, uh, getting away from the familiar view. But I've been thinking about what it means, you know, this relationship between sacred and safe. Mm. And I love the idea of creating sacred space as uh, inside of one's soul, inside of one's day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So Alice, what is something that you found that sustains you during this time of pandemic? Well, let me say that I've gone down a lot of blind alleys. <laughs> For example. Fair. fair. Absolutely fair. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's just say I'm, I could easily develop a little problem with chocolate at this time. <laughs> you know, in the Harry Potter books, isn't um, chocolate the remedy to a uh, Dementor, right? Dementor really sucks the soul, literally, according to J.K. Rowling, sucks the soul out of people. And chocolate, in that sense, is good for the soul. I contend. 
Yes, yes. And I've even, I've, all right, I've, I've experimented a little lately with ice cream. And I can say that if you have a spoonful of ice cream in your mouth, you genuinely feel better experiencing whatever you might be exposed to otherwise, yeah. like newspaper headlines. You genuinely do feel better with the ice cream mm. in your mouth. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that that is sustainable. I'm interested in, you know, prayer practice, going to God, spending time with God, spending time doing the sacred. Yeah. I'm interested in exploring whether that might be more restorative Absolutely. and healing than many of the other things we do. Absolutely. So while chocolate might be good for the soul, this is what I hear you saying, Alice, is that chocolate may be good for the soul, but it isn't sacred, right? Um, Although some people, <laughs> some people might say it is. So, and you know what? If you do, great. Hey, I'm open to hearing that argument. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, finding those sacred, whether it's practices or spaces or conversations or people actions that restore um, and sustain a person's soul. And yeah. intentionally bringing those more into oneself uh, during what is clearly going to be a rough month and a half ahead of us. That's right. That's right. So I'm curious, Alice, um, it's, it's just, I cannot see my chocolate eating and ice cream eating ways being able by themselves to keep me afloat for the next six weeks. Absolutely. Um, or, and beyond, right. And beyond, yes. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a really good way of thinking about it. So I'm curious, Alice, to hear if there are practices you have found to sustain your soul, um, or energize, or maybe another way of thinking about it is like refilling your own cup to then go out and give, shape, you know, the world and the communities that you interact with from there. I like um, your use of that metaphor of the cup, because I remember times in the past when I was really running on empty, and I had this idea of exercise as a metaphor that the way you develop muscles is by pushing through pain, by just exercising more, just by digging deeper. But sometimes uh, I would not have anything left. I would hear, you know, I imagine this tin bucket that I was trying to get water out of and I could hear the scrape of the dipper against the bottom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that sometimes physically as well, if you're out of water or out of electrolytes or you can't push through that and it's unhealthy to do so. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I have a, a friend who's like many of us feeling, you know, worn down to the nub recently. And she asked me, you know, what my prayer practice was. And the way she asked it made it seem as though I've only had one prayer practice for years. And in trying to answer her, she was like wanting, she was wanting me to prescribe something for her. She wanted me to say, oh, this is what I do. And then she would say, okay, I'll try that. And I'll get back to you in a week on how it's doing for me. 
<laughs> and I realized that I just had so many different prayer practices for different times at different situations, how to summarize that. I mean, imagine, for example, if someone were to ask, oh, how do you talk to Julia? Mm. You know, let me try that so I can talk to her. Well, I have so many different ways of talking mm -hmm. to you. There's this mm -hmm. podcast, there's our meetings, mm -hmm. there's planning, you know, lessons for church school. There's, you know, laughing at our experiences with kids. There's playing tag, you know, during parish retreat. <laughs> yeah, that's like also a great analogy is you don't just relate to a person in one way. Right. Right. Yeah. And if all I did with you was to play tag or all I did with you was to go to meetings, it would be, we would have a much more limited relationship. And I would like to see people, you know, uh, have this very multifaceted uh, relationship with God where they relate to God in all many, many different ways. Yeah. And I also, yeah, kind of jumping off that idea, Alice, I see, at least for me, part of understanding how I take care of my soul and allow, you know, God's like restorative work to happen there is knowing what does fill my cup, right? So there is a piece yes. of this that is personality too. You know, I like sitting on my comfy chair by myself as an introvert and reading, whether that's like reading a scripture passage or reading a different kind of book. But that to me is taking care of my soul um, and sort of a, becomes a sacred, I don't know, moment and a sacred act. act. But that might not work for everybody. Um, or reading alone, <laughs> reading may not be particularly um, restorative. For some. Or um, at different times in a person's day, much less life, different things might work better, whether one is full of energy or fatigued, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. If you have little, you know, toddlers running around your house versus when you're, you know, empty nesting or something, right? It's a different, right. Yeah. One of the things that I and my housemates did uh, yesterday evening was very fun, and it turned out to be much more fun than we expected. Uh, we do a spiritual practice once a week, but this was the first time we did this one. Um, we read the book of Micah aloud, taking turns, but we read from different Bibles, uh, including the Message Bible, mm -hmm. so that there was this very amusing sort of discontinuity between say, reading the NRSV version to suddenly jumping into the message. Absolutely. Uh, and you would think that the discordancy of that would put us off, but it, it didn't. It sort of livened things up and made us investigate more and say, wait, what does your translation say? And, <laughs> you know, I it, love that. It was very energizing. Yeah. Uh, and this was, I'm interested because you uh, posited this kind of introverted version of sitting in your comfy chair and reading, whereas we did this in a group fashion. Absolutely. Yeah. 
I love that. So I think I'm still sort of restored by that experience. And I'd like to say that we read the book of Micah because it's short and we could do it in one sitting. Mm -hmm. And also because one of my housemates really wanted to get to her favorite quote in Micah, which is, and is written on the, I think the wall outside the Hillel Center in Harvard Square. And I believe is quoted in that same statement of uh, Bishop Curry's mm -hmm. that I quoted from, yes, I think it is. It is, yes. it is in Micah. It is in Micah, but um, I'm wondering if Bishop Curry quoted it or if you, Julia, quoted it. I don't know. I don't remember. You know, I wrote that last week. Who remember? Who knows? Who who Oh, uh, yes, now it's Bishop Curry. Okay. Okay, yeah. Uh, Micah says, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God? Amen. Amen. Hi, friends. Um, I really, we really try not to do this and uh, just bring you my and Ellis's conversations kind of raw and but I realized we, Alice and I, kind of dove into a conversation about this book and I did not do a very good job of introducing it. So let me just, a quick footnote here. The book that we're discussing is called My Grandmother's Hands. It's by Rizma'a Menachem, who has an MSW, is a licensed social worker, and also has the credentials SEP, which to be honest, I'm actually not sure what that stands for. But the subtitle is Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies. So this is the book that Alice and I are going to refer to in the next segment. The Reverend Matt has uh, the staff reading the book, My Grandmother's Hands. Alice, no pressure. Have you started it yet? You have. Uh, okay. I am thinking that he also uh, uses the word safe a lot. I'm thinking, yes. I think at the end of chapter two, there's an ex one of his exercises is about that, which yeah. I found very kind of a profound experience when I did the exercise. And, and, and really for, for him, I would argue safety and trauma are related. There is, the sacred is at work here in Menachem's work, but it's not necessarily on the surface, the way that we right. see it maybe done, like in scriptural stories or even in um, Reverend Michael Curry's uh, reflection and response to racial violence around the The right Reverend Michael Curry. The right Reverend. Um, but yes, yes, safety is certainly um, really relevant in the exercises and the way that um, Menachem talks about racial trauma and, and all of this. Yes, I'm afraid that um, we are not good at understanding safety, just as we're not good at understanding love. Mm. So that these things need to be studied, unpacked, discussed, felt in the body, as Menachem would advise, to understand. Ah, yeah. We're reading this as a staff and it's been a really like meaningful, you know, group to discuss and think through and kind of talk about even our own experiences in these practices. And have you, yeah, go ahead. Have you done the exercises either by yourselves at home or together? So the way that the Reverend Matt has 
you know, like led our discussion is that, you know, we're invited to do them at home by ourselves. We don't do them together. It's more just talking about your experience with them and some exercises, you know, if somebody doesn't want to or doesn't have anything terribly like profound or interesting that they want to share, they certainly don't have to. So I, for me, it's worked really well to have that kind of freedom, right? Like to try the exercises, to have that designated space, five, 10 minutes to do them and have the invitation to discuss it and put words to it uh, if we want to as a group. Yeah. And to, if I would think it would be great to hear others' responses. Sure. Yeah, you mean how, how other people have responded to the same like exercise that Yes, what they thought. Um, I was shocked when I did that exercise at, um, you know, I chose in the exercise, you're asked to imagine yourself in the presence of someone who you see as safe uh, and then to uh, imagine yourself in the presence of someone you see as unsafe. And I was shocked at my body's reaction mm. and shocked at how unsafe I found the person I was thinking of. Wow, I mean, interesting. You were surprised so, by that. I was surprised. Well, Alice, can we unpack that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so why were you surprised by that? Because I, clearly, I didn't want to scare myself, so I did not imagine myself in the presence of, you know, somebody evil. Uh, so I imagined myself in the presence of someone. Yeah, Why were you surprised that you felt unsafe when you were thinking about somebody who is unsafe? I was surprised by the degree mm -hmm. of how, in other words, my body had a different opinion from my mind. My mind selected someone I found mildly unsafe and, you know, a little untrustworthy, a little passive aggressive, a little prone to uh, say hurtful things. But I did not consciously think of that person as being very unsafe. And then when I went into my bodily experience, I found out my body considered that person extremely unsafe. Oh, interesting. Okay, so that's really interesting, Alice. Yeah, thanks for unpacking that a little bit. I'm yeah. always intrigued. So the body has its own kind of knowledge that the mind may not be aware of. And it would be nice if the two, you know, talk <laughs> together <laughs> once in a while. <laughs> right, come on. <laughs> Yeah, but it's interesting that you bring this up because I do think that's part of the soul care, right? Part of yes, part of good creating like that sacred space and honoring the sacred space within ourselves is acknowledging the connection that our body and our minds have, and so, not being afraid of that connection. Afraid of that, yeah. yeah. So the last chapter that our group read was chapter three. And so I'm sorry, spoiler alert, for if you haven't read it, turn me off or, you know, Alice, I'm spoiler, spoiler alerting, I think, unless you've read beyond that. I don't know. I have. I don't know about our audience. Okay, though, so, so I'm sorry. I'm going to go. <laughs> um, but there's a section on resiliency. And I thought it would be also be fun to unpack this uh, idea of resiliency a little bit together, Alice. Absolutely. 
So people don't, you know, you hear it a lot, but it's like this great mystery to us. Yes, someone yes. is resilient, someone else is not resilient. Yeah, What's like how do you get it? How do you, right, 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 right. right. So, so what- Can I go I, to the store and buy yeah, a package? Exactly, exactly. So what does it mean? I'm curious, Alice, what it means to you. What does the word resiliency like mean to you? And what do you think it looks like? I would say that, again, my thinking on this has moved because I was very much raised to get back on the horse that threw me. And with this idea of you get knocked down, you get back up. Um, but I'm not sure that that is a best practice. Yeah. So I grew up kind of thinking, or even just like, you know, a yeah. month ago before reading this book, even, I sort of thought resiliency was like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Ah, interesting kind of like it's an attribute slash maybe an action and it's something you do. I can imagine people thinking that you are either resilient or you're not, not yeah. seeing that there that you can develop resiliency. Yeah, so yeah, certainly, yeah. And then also I think even just not that long ago that I thought resiliency was like being self-made or something. Yeah, yeah. We Americans are kind of worship this idea of being self-made people yeah. and pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Yeah, that's right. And it particularly irks me. It's um, and it's why I love that collect that is one of two we always read in Compline. Let us never forget mm -hmm. the work of other people. Mm -hmm. You know, this kind of myth of being a self-made man. Uh, is actually, it's quite arrogant. Arrogant and destructive, I think. And destructive. Yeah. And, and honestly, just not true, right? Like, oh, nobody yes. is actually self-made. I, I no. would really argue that, I think. No. And, you know, great thinkers often say that they stand, they're dwarves standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now that I've directed us down this path of what we think, um, you know, resiliency is, let's problematize it a little bit more. <laughs> yes, yes, um, by all means. Yeah. I also want to say that uh, resiliency is something that my knee jerk is to think of it in relation to children, because everyone's always trying to raise resilient children. Now they are. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe a decade ago, it was safety first was the watchword. Oh, how funny. Which, and it could be that, that those ideas of safety were somewhat misguided. It's mm. how can you develop resilience unless you face things that might be unsafe, unless you actually get, oh, I'm getting into trouble with my words here. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, sorry, I just to add another, just one derailing comment here. Do you think like 20 years ago, it was self-esteem? 20-ish, mm -hmm. like vaguely 20-ish? Yes. Self-esteem, yes. and then it was safety, and now it's resiliency. So these are like hot button parenting, you know, like, like uh, generations or something, right? Uh, yes, and they're always taken to the absurd degree. Dream, yes. So yes. Uh, that's not a balance you know, in parenting. During the self-esteem era, you know, kids used to flee from their parents so they wouldn't get these constant, you know, onslaughts of praise for their smallest 
you know, most humble yes. achievement. Wait, Alice, can you, is it all right if I put you on the spot here? You can say no or tell me to edit this out. But I, there was a funny thing that you texted me the other day about one of your kids having like a weekly award ceremony or something. Oh, and I was like, no, wait, wait, yes. stop, 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 wait, wait, before you tell the story, I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is like a, such a millennial thing. And I'm a millennial. So I was thinking, oh my gosh, that's my childhood right there. <laughs> it's just like terribly problematic thing about having award ceremonies every week, but tell the story. <laughs> I don't mind. I, uh, I have to say that the principal of my kid's school at this time, really, uh, my youngest one was not even in school, um, but the older one was in kindergarten, and there was a weekly awards assembly at the school, and I loved the school, and the principal and vice principal were my heroes. They're still my heroes. They're sure. two of my, you know, special people. But this awards assembly that happened every Friday morning, you know, at like 8.30 a.m. was a serious drain on me. And luckily, I had a fellow mom who felt the same way, a friend. And she, between her house and the school, lay a Starbucks. Between mine and the school, uh, there was only a pizza parlor and it didn't open till later. But she would get us to Starbucks and we would... Go you into the auditorium, the and then we'd, we'd sneak out the back. I think she'd, you know, hide the Starbucks because you weren't supposed to. Does your to. kid know that you skipped his award ceremonies? Oh, I'm sure he would have been proud of me. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever mentioned it to him, but I'm sure. Well, now he'll have to listen to this episode. <laughs> you know, he, as a victim as were you, I guess, of um, the self-esteem, you know, era of parenting, uh, he is very much, you know, opposed to. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I absolutely am like, you know, I have like, yeah, or maybe had, I don't even know if I still have it, but you know, the boxes of trophies from oh, every year yes. that like have no real meaning, right? They're just collecting dust somewhere because there's like 50 of them, you know, <laughs> that mean nothing. So so this same son of mine recently cleaned out all his stuff from my house, which I uh, am so proud of him for doing because so many people are like, you know, six years old before they finally empty out the last of their stuff from their parents' house. But um, when he did it, I noticed that none of the trophies uh, got retained. They all... You know, Trash. Yeah. Yeah. Mine, honestly, mine might be in a uh, landfill somewhere uh, yeah. by now. But yeah. 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 They just have no meaning. All right. Well, anyway, thank you for that tangent. That lovely, lovely tangent. One more small tangent. Um, another, the other son's, one of his meaningless trophies I gave to a friend to use in a w Yankee swap. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, I hope you got something much better. Uh, I think they did. I think, you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, man, that's like chewing gum. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Much better than a useless trophy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, so bringing us back to resiliency, um, Menachem. Yeah. He says, he says, quote, I often tell people that resiliency is not a thing or an attribute, but a flow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold on. It goes on. He goes on and says, it moves through the body and between multiple bodies when they are harmonized. 
It is neither built nor developed. It is taken in and expressed as part of a larger relationship with a family, a group, a community, or the world at large. You and I have both talked about the importance of communities we've been a part of that have so upheld us, so supported us. Yeah. And I think I love this quote because it gave me language to really articulate what I think I've been like, like it's just been right here in my throat, you know, and I haven't been able to quite get the words. And I think this really helped, right, that resiliency is not a, it's not an individual act. It's not pull myself up by my bootstraps and like, I did it, look at me, you know, and it's not even an attribute, which is, seems a little bit funny at first when you hear that. But yes, the idea that like, we all need community, we all need each other and that is how you develop sort of this muscle of like the resiliency is through community and it's through people showing each other how to move forward. I want to ask you. Oh, yes, please. Okay. I loved your story of, um, and I don't want to blow it by uh, doing a spoiler, but you had a church community of, you tell me. to identify resiliency in my own life. Yeah. Um, so I'm partly confused by this. I'm just going to fill nope. time. Right after you and I had this conversation about this church community for you, yeah, the role that I had a conversation with another friend whose family background was rough, functional, rough, rough very rough, yeah. and kind of non-existent in some ways, uh-huh. just absent. Uh-huh. And the the community at her church took on the role of family and parents. Yeah, 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 totally. So, And hearing these two things Mm -hmm. so close together in time made a deep impression on me. There is some work that's done on, this is interesting that you raise this like family and church Uh, interaction because there's some research that's done that would say calling the church your family is is not super healthy right like um, right it's not certainly it's like it's a spectrum it's it's a little bit like trying to nail down a moving target especially if you don't have a healthy family and I'm saying you know you because that's something I can relate to um but but if the lines between like for example, pastor and dad get blurred, that can right. be a little funny. So, yes. so, so there's some stuff going on there. But um, for me, how it ended up working out in my own story is that I, I basically had a community. I think if my life had taken me down different roads and different kinds of dead ends, I think I could have really ended up in some very not good situations. I mean, I think, well, I'm, I'll just look at that. <laughs> but um, I really could have had a very, you know, sometimes people will look at me and say, wow, that happened to you? Like, how did you turn out so normal? Um, I, I've had that happen a few times in my life. And I really honestly think it's because I had friends who were willing and sort of at that time in their life and at that time in my life were able to give me what I needed, you know, and I one of the ways I think about it is that God gave me family, even though it wasn't like in the package, you know, that 
or the delivery right. system that I would have chosen. Right. So for me, that ended up like kind of leading into my call to minute into ministry and also leading into this particular congregation. Um, but, but I would consider my surrogate family separate from like my church context, if that makes sense. Does that make sense at all? Like they're Christians, they're still part of my church community, but I tend to, to not think about church as equaling family. One has to be careful of word usage. Yeah, sure. So there is some overlap in these, right? Like how we love each other unconditionally and we sort of accept each other's faults, right? Like that's sort of something you hope happens in a healthy family. And that's also happening in a church community to, to an extent. A healthy, a healthy, healthy, church, a healthy community. church community. Yeah, 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 sure. Um, but this is hard to find. I, I, I would also contend that, um, you know, the two of the lead pastors had been working together uh, for uh, probably like 20 years before I became a member at the church. And both of them have um, MFTs and MDivs. I think he also had a doctor of ministry in addition to that. So they had like a counseling center that was separate and had all this like marriage and family therapy um, going on in the community. And so it was a really unique community in that way because we did constantly, we're having these uh, conversations around like healthy relationships and healthy boundaries and unconditional love and, you know, all these things um, that sort of make up healthy and safe for, you know, whatever safe relation relating is. And that's kind of unique. I think there are a lot of church contexts where that aren't particularly helped. To find a healthy, thriving, like relational church is hard, I think. Now I'm thinking of, have you seen the cartoons of that cartoonist naked pastor? No. I think he used to be a pastor and then left the church because of... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, if you look at his cartoons, um, some of which are very amusing, you can see why. <laughs> I will have to look him up. That's that yeah. sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> but it's interesting to me that you, your safe people were pastors and that you feel grateful to them and want to give back. Because mm -hmm. that's something, you know, before we started talking about resiliency and community, um, you know, even from when I was very young, I was conscious of this huge, overwhelming sense of gratitude towards uh, the sort of good people in my life that uh, not just kept me afloat, but, you know. I will offer this as well, Alice, that I do have experience in churches, personal experience in churches that don't do this so well, right? Ah, mm -hmm. Yeah, like in high school, uh, I definitely had experiences in churches where where you see one type of Christianity and you're like, wow, that is like healthy. And that's about, you know, lifting up other people and working together for a common, like good and flourishing of human dignity and all of this. And then there's another kind of quote Christianity that is about gain, you know, power is about gaining as much power as possible and controlling people and other sorts of dysfunction. And I think that's also part of like my story in terms of like resiliency. So that's without that, without those sort of dysfunctional relationships, I wouldn't really know to look for something different. Right. And then I ended up with this more positive, uh, 
I would love to trace that. Um, while you were speaking, I was thinking about how teachers, you know, as we're growing up, we have good teachers, we have bad teachers. We have teachers that love us and teachers that hate us, every kind of thing in between. But because we have so many teachers, because we go up through a bunch of grades, most of us, we have a kind of understanding of teachers coming in a variety of forms. And before the first day of school, kids are very interested in who's going to be their teacher. Um, but in terms of churches, people don't have as much of that kind of experience, mm -hmm. I would think. Mm -hmm. But you have, because you've yeah, so I grew up. I grew up in like as a Christian. So that partly, you know, basically my whole life, I was baptized. I think I must have been like in second grade or something. Um, so for me, you and know, what denomination were you in when you were baptized? It would have been non-denominational. Mm -hmm. That was, you know, elementary school, not uh, borderline megachurch. I think. You know, I haven't spent a lot of, t I haven't spent, you know, 10 plus years in every kind of area or location, but I have attended or been part of, whether that's serving or being a member of churches in almost every region of the United States. I was looking at this the other day. So like I've been part of like integral preaching, doing things with the community in a church in the South, the U.S. South in a church, you know, I officiated weddings in the U.S. South, um, I served in Southern California, I was part of a church, really connected with a church in Hawaii, um, grew up in Oregon, was, went, you know, almost every week to this mega church in Oregon, so the nor Northwest, and now we're in New England, so um, being part of church uh, at St. James's in, in Cambridge has been a whole other new and exciting, uh, lovely experience. So I think the only, well, the Midwest, I don't have a lot of Midwest and I don't have a lot of South, what, what do they say? South Eastern Sunbelt, I guess. I Southern. Think I think your experience in the South counts in the South the Sun Belt. So like, but I'm, I am disappointed knowing that you were born in Alaska. I am disappointed that you didn't have a church experience there. I know, I, I know, I got nothing. I did attend a church there, but I wasn't like a part of the community in the same way. Yeah, yeah. So. Oh, I'm glad you attended a church. I know. So yeah, yeah I've, covered that, yeah. I've covered it. Yeah. yeah. Checkbox. Check <laughs> done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one of the things I really love to do, Alice, and find these conversations so fun is that I, I think back to these different kind of parts or segments in my life where I'm like, oh, church in Hawaii, what do you do in Hawaii at youth group? You grab the surfboard that the youth pastor purchased on the surf, you know, on the, on the um, youth budget line and you go surfing, you know, um, it's just a different kind of youth ministry. Yeah. Um, so I'm really bummed that St. James's doesn't have church-owned surfboards. We gotta work. Oh man, <laughs> what are we thinking, Julia? <laughs> Torturous. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's just like different contexts and different, uh, yeah, different communities and different things that people care about. It really looks so different. I I was talking to someone else who actually 
uh, was a pastor in a church in Hawaii. And, you know, he said people came barefoot to oh, yeah. you know, worship. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> no shirts, no shoes. Yeah. No shirts That's even. Oh, that's yeah. Church. Oh, awesome. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I have another friend who uh, whose parents were missionaries in Guatemala and Venezuela. And, you know, there were chickens in church all the time in her. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, so this is interesting to kind of look at this again, Alice, and think about like safety, right, is such it can be really contextual because in the age of COVID or, you know, in a certain context, no shoes might be quote unsafe, right? But um, in another context, no shoes is home. This has been really fun, Alice. I, oh, good. you know, my hope and prayer is that maybe our conversation filled some, some people's cups. And uh, if it didn't, I hope that folks will feel um, empowered and encouraged to find what will, you know, find what their soul needs to, to be restored by the living God who is um, with us, even if we um, don't feel it, or even if we, you know, don't want it. Maybe this could be a, something we check in with each other about from time to time in this podcast about, you know, different prayer practices and different things we do to, you know, for restoration or creating the sacred. Absolutely. Um, our I, lives. I love that. I would love that. And Especially other- now that we're not meeting physically in church. Um, yeah. Finding those sacred spaces and those moments that sort of foster this, um, the sacred in a strange way. You know, it's funny that YouTube is our sacred space on Sunday morning. Yes. You yes. Know, it is funny. It's a, just a funny time. <laughs> Well, it, I was thinking about this too, that spaces can be sacred or profane. Um, a town hall meeting, a de- political debate, a family, all of these can be sacred or profane, or there can be sacred space within them or unhallowed space, destructive mm-hmm. space within them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Should we, should we leave with any announcements for St. James people? I don't We could talk about the in-person thing. Yeah. All right. If you're hearing this before October 11th, St. James's community is offering an in-person Eucharist. And so if you want to find out more about that, I'll encourage you to check out our website or email the Reverend Matthew Stewart. And that can also be found on our website. Our website is St. James Cambridge. Wait, Julia, is the hyphen gone already? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was waiting for you. I was, I was, I was giving Alice a little (laughs) eye to say something about that. (laughs) So in terms of sacred space, um, very strange to think that that might be the only Eucharist of 2020. (laughs) But, you know, we hope, we hope people will uh, be able to come if, if you're, you know, I'm coming. Are you coming, yes, Julia? I am. I am. You know, but I just want to acknowledge that some people may not. Some be people can't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, you know, for safety reasons or whatever, need to stay home. And so we do also want to really encourage people to do absolutely and best for for your situation. Is that all? To learn more about our church, you can find us on YouTube at St. James's Church Cambridge, 
or visit our website at stjamescambridge.org. Bye. Bye. Bye.